In the first book, O Theopolis, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up for you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Amen. It is so nice to be back, honestly. It's so good to see you guys and really excited to catch up with some of you uh, after the service. Thank you so much um, for having me. So, how do leaders instill confidence in their followers when they're leaving? What do they say in their final farewell speech? When a manager leaves a football team, when a CEO leaves a company, when a head teacher leaves a school, when a prime minister steps down from office, what do they do? How do they encourage their followers about the future? How will they ensure that the good work that they've started will continue? Some try to make sure they have a great successor lined up. Some will delegate more widely. Some will try and inspire their followers to action. What do they say in that final speech? How do they give their followers comfort? In his final speech as Prime Minister, Tony Blair tried to comfort the public with these words. It's not an easy thing to say goodbye. But when the time comes for a different person to take this office, the country deserves to be reassured that it is in safe hands, and it will be. He was trying to reassure the public that the country will continue to be governed well by his successor. He's saying, trust in my successor, Gordon Brown. Whether he believed what he was saying is besides the point. Sometimes a leader may finish with a motivational speech. The leader doesn't think that they themselves need to be present in their followers' lives. The followers themselves can succeed. A stirring example of this is John Keating in the Dead Poet Society, who, when leaving his students, says this, Carpe diem, seize the day, boys. Make your lives extraordinary. So how did Jesus encourage his disciples when he departed? How did he comfort them? Did he offer them a wonderful successor? Did he give them a motivational speech? How did he reassure them that his work on earth would continue in his physical absence? How can we today have reassurance that Christ is still working, that he is building his church? 
Last week, we all celebrated Easter, Resurrection Sunday. And what a joyful day that is to celebrate, isn't it? Celebrating our Savior, defeating death, rising from the dead, bringing resurrection life to us. And the ascension naturally follows on from Resurrection Sunday. We often dwell on Christ's death, his resurrection, and his second coming, and that is wonderful. But I myself certainly have overlooked the importance of his ascension back to heaven and how that makes a difference to our lives today as believers. And I'm excited that we'll get to look more at that as we look at the first 11 verses of Acts 1 together. But before we get to the ascension itself, it'd be great to think a little bit about the purpose of the book of Acts. So Acts is written by Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke. And in one sense, Luke and Acts is really just one book. Uh, so many scholars actually refer to it as Luke-Acts. And Luke-Acts is written to Theophilus. And Theophilus is someone we don't know a whole lot about, but it's believed that he was a high-ranking or influential Gentile man. And Luke explains to Theophilus in Luke chapter 1, verses 3 to 4, why he has written his account. He says this, It seemed good to me also having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Luke and Luke-Acts has written an orderly account so that Theophilus will have certainty about the things that he has been taught about Christ. So when we're reading Luke-Acts, we can always ask, how does what we're reading give Theophilus certainty concerning the things that he has been taught. Now, let's take a look at the prologue of Acts that we find in our first five verses of our reading. And I think from these verses, we can take comfort as we'll see that the resurrected Christ will continue his ministry through his spirit-empowered people. Look at verse one of our passage with me. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up. The book of Luke was about what Jesus began to do. Not what Jesus did in a completed sense, but what he began to do. What Luke is implicitly saying here is that the book of Acts is about what Jesus continued to do. Even though Jesus is ascended in heaven by verse 9 of the book, it's what he's continuing to do. We sometimes hear Acts called the Acts of the Apostles. Um, it would arguably be better named the Acts of Jesus Christ or the continued Acts of Jesus Christ. Luke wants us to know that Acts is all about what Jesus continues to do through his people. He may be ascended on heaven, but he continues to minister here on earth. Have a glance at verse 2. Jesus got the church up and running through choosing apostles, which we see in verse 2. He selected men that could begin the continuation of his ministry. And like Jesus, these apostles were to strive for the glory of God. They were the ones that would build the church and lay the foundations for Christ's ministry to continue. Jesus, just before his absence, provides for his people through giving them apostles. Now, Luke, as a writer, he loves to give plenty of evidence in Luke-Acts for everything, and he gives Theophilus some of that in verse 3. Luke mentions how Jesus proved that he had risen from the grave, that the tomb was empty, by appearing to the disciples several times after his resurrection. Not just once, but several times. And we see from the road to Emmaus, described in Luke 24, that the disciples were, many of them were slow to believe that Jesus had actually risen from the dead. But Luke is making the point here that by this point, they were utterly convinced 
that they had seen the risen Jesus several times. And a quick aside, I think we see here and throughout all of scripture that our faith isn't just wishful thinking, it isn't irrational. We have hard evidence for it. We have an incredible amount of verifiable historical accounts that testify to the risen Jesus. So let's take confidence in the word of God and its testimony that we have a risen savior. Let's take comfort that our savior is a resurrected savior. Let's have a look at verses four to five. Jesus orders the apostles not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And we know that Jesus here is referring to Pentecost, which we see described in detail in Acts 2. But why did they need to stay in Jerusalem? Why did Pentecost need to happen in Jerusalem? Well, there are a few reasons. One commentator says this, Jerusalem was a divinely intended scene for the giving of the Spirit as the place where Jesus was rejected was the place to be where fresh witness to him would begin. What a glorious reversal. Jerusalem from being a place of rejection of our Lord to the place where the Spirit was poured out. We also know that Jerusalem was where the temple was, where God had dwelt with his people throughout much of the Old Testament. But at Pentecost, as the Spirit is poured out, we see all believers become many temples because God now dwell in believers by his Holy Spirit. God's presence was no longer in a physical temple, but in believers' bodies. And this is truly incredible. It's truly incredible that Jerusalem is where the gospel goes out. Because in the Old Testament, Jerusalem was the place where you had to go to meet God. So even if you weren't from Israel, you had to travel to Jerusalem. Whereas in Acts, we see this great reversal where believers go out from Jerusalem to tell the nations of the gospel to go out and invite people to become many temples too. Jerusalem was that divinely ordained place where God would start the building of his church. We've touched on that already, but what exactly happened at Pentecost? We see this Holy Spirit promised here in verses four to five. What happened there? Throughout the Old Testament, some of God's people at times have been temporarily filled with the Spirit for a certain purpose, for a certain amount of time. But there was no one in the Old Testament that had been indwelt by the Holy Spirit 24-7. No one had until Christ, the God-man, walked on earth. And his atoning death on the cross, paying the sacrifice for our sins, he made it possible for God to dwell with man like he had in Eden once again. And so at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit descends and filled those in the room. And then he dwelt in the disciples permanently. And he, dwell, he dwells in us today permanently too. And I think we can so often forget how amazing that is. I forget it all the time. That God literally, he lives in us through his spirit. And the spirit, he is our helper. He is our comforter, our joy. He guarantees our salvation. He is such a wonderful encouragement to us every day. Nothing this life or anyone can throw at us can separate us from him, from God's love. And what a comfort it is that because we're indwelt by the Spirit, because we are all many temples, Jesus can continue his ministry through us today. The great high priest has made us all priests. And he has given us all that we need to carry out his ministry. He has given us all that we need to expand the kingdom of God here on earth because he has given us the Holy Spirit his empowering presence. 
The resurrected Christ will continue his ministry on earth through the power of the Spirit, through giving us his empowering presence to go out and further his kingdom. The kingdom of God is about God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven. And as spirit-empowered people, we can see more of the kingdom of God here by doing his will on earth as it is in heaven. Nothing is possible, though, for us without Jesus. If we try and do even anything in our own strength, it will amount to nothing. But in our weakness, if we rely on the Spirit, then anything can happen. So if you feel inadequate, then that's okay. In fact, that's good. You are inadequate. It's only through the Spirit, only through Him, that we can do anything of any value for the Lord. He gives us power. So with Jesus, everything is possible. Nothing will stop him from continuing his ministry through the church. You look around the world, it'd be a very scary place. We can see persecution all over the globe. But nothing will stop Christ from building his church. Just look at the book of Acts. Persecution all the time, but his church was unstoppable. So let's pray boldly and expectantly that Christ will do great things through us for his glory. Let's be ambitious for the gospel. Let's live our lives as a living sacrifice for the furtherance of the kingdom and for God's glory. Let's take comfort that the resurrected Christ will continue his ministry today through his spirit-empowered people. As you move on to the second section of our passage in verses 6 to 11, we see that the disciples have some sort of confusion over what Jesus was building. More specifically, they're confused about what the kingdom of God will look like. In verse 6, they ask Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And this question is very revealing about where the disciples are at. And Kevin DeYoung, a commentator, helpfully points out the three things that the disciples don't understand properly about the kingdom of God at this point. So they don't have a correct understanding about its nature, its domain, and its timing. The disciples still think the nature of the kingdom of God is one where the Romans are overthrown by an armed or political revolution. They think the domain of the kingdom is just for Israel. And they think the timing is something they have, they have the right to know. And they also think the apocalyptic prophecies of the Old Testament are imminently going to be fulfilled. So let's look at Jesus' response to the disciples' question. Firstly, in verse 7, he reminds them that it's not for them to know the times or season so that the Father has fixed by his own authority. The disciples, again, are probably thinking very apocalyptically at this moment in time. But it's not for them to know when the final day will be. Only the Father knows that. They don't have the right to know, and they don't need to know. And in verse 8, Jesus shows them what they should be doing as they await that final day. I absolutely love the use of the word but at the start of verse 8. Jesus just said in verse 7, you can't know the times or the seasons of the kingdom being restored in its fullness. But, he's saying, I've got something much better for you to devote your life to. I've got a far bigger and better vision for the kingdom than you ever had. Come and be part of it. Jesus reminds them again that they will receive the power of the Holy Spirit and that he will enable them to be witnesses. Not just to Jerusalem, not just to Judea and Samaria, but to all the earth. And Jesus is foreshadowing the order in which the gospel will spread in the book of Acts. 
and he broadens his disciples' horizons. He's reminded them of all the Old Testament prophecies that said that salvation would come from Israel to all nations. He's reminded them that gospel will transcend borders, ethnicities, cultures, everything. He's reminded them the kingdom will be built through gospel proclamation, not political or military revolution. And he's showing them the kingdom isn't being restored to Israel as such. The kingdom is going out from Israel to the whole world. How amazing for the apostles that they are being invited into that kingdom. Into a kingdom that is not yet built in its fullness, but a kingdom that has been inaugurated and a kingdom that is unstoppable. So we see Jesus, he corrects their view of the kingdom. He shows them how much better his kingdom is than any of their ideas about what the kingdom of God should look like. He shows them that the domain of the kingdom of God is heavenly and spiritual. He shows them that the nature of the kingdom is universal, not national. And he shows them that the timing of the kingdom is now and not yet. That's the kingdom that the ascended Christ is building through his church. And I think there's a challenge for us here. The disciples had their own view about what the kingdom of God should look like based on what they wanted. And I think we need to be really careful that we don't try to build the kingdom we want instead of the kingdom that God wants to build. Do we care too much about building a kingdom that is in our own image, in our own likeness, in the way we want things to be? I think a helpful test um, for my heart and for maybe many of your hearts recently was how we responded to um, the Asbury awakening or revival or whatever you want to call that. Uh, if you haven't heard about it, basically at this college in America a few months ago, there was an ordinary chapel service that they had most mornings. Um, but people stayed there for days and then weeks, singing praise to God, praying, repenting of sin. People were professing Christ as Lord for the first time. And there were so many encouraging stories coming out of it. And many reacted with joy, but some reacted with strong skepticism. And if I'm honest, to be a skeptic is my, often my instinct with these things, especially if I see a movement of God that's not from my tribe or my kind of church denomination. It's so easy for me to be skeptical. And I have to question my heart, do I even want it to be true? Do I want these good stories that I'm hearing to be true? Or do I want to be proved right about my own views? Now, don't get me wrong, it's good not to be naive and assume any news of any revival anywhere in the world is God at work. But we must watch our hearts. Are our hearts really softened to God doing great things through people that aren't in our theological tribe? Do we pray that God will build his kingdom through brothers and sisters in Christ who have very different ways of going about things to us? Are we happy to allow God to build his kingdom in the way he pleases? Or do we wish that he built a kingdom here where everyone did and believed the exact same thing as us? Do we say, your will be done as long as it pretty much looks like my will. Your will be done as long as it's comfortable for me. Your will be done as long as it's done through my church tribe. Or do we say this, your will be done whatever that looks like. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's be encouraged that God will build his kingdoms, kingdom in ways that we'll never imagine or expect Let's rejoice with our brothers and sisters over the world as we see new life in so many different contexts, cultures, countries, and churches. Let's take comfort that the ascended Christ 
will continue to build his kingdom. Jesus, in verse 8, uses the word witnesses to describe what the disciples will primarily do to build that kingdom. They are to bear witness to the risen Christ, who they have seen with their very own eyes. They are to go out and, by the power of the Spirit, tell of what they have seen. Jesus doesn't tell the disciples to go out and perform certain rituals or to go out and do spectacular things, even though they did that. He tells this unimpressive group of people to go out and be witnesses. He says, go out and tell of what I have done. Isn't it wonderful that we're called to be witnesses? We're not called to be impressive or strong. We're just called to be witnesses. We can just humbly in the spirit's strength go out and tell people about Jesus. We can go out and tell people about who he is and what he's done. Let's have a look at verse 9. It says this. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. Here we see Jesus lifted up to heaven. Here we see the ascension. But why is this fact that Jesus was ascended to heaven, why is that so important? The theologian Michael Horton says that we typically treat the ascension as little more than a dazzling exclamation point for the resurrection, rather than a new event in its own right. Luke says in verse 9 that Jesus was lifted up and that a cloud covered him. And one commentator says this language is used to evoke imagery of the Son of Man from Daniel 7, but also the exaltation of the suffering servant in Isaiah 52. So that Luke's readers will realize that Jesus' crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension are all part of his enthronement up in the heavenly temple. Peter Orr, the commentator, says this, it is his ascension into the heavens that completes his exaltation to the right hand of God. Jesus was lifted up on the cross, he rose from the grave, and he was lifted up to heaven. And the ascension further exalts and glorifies Christ. How wonderful is that? So what are the implications of the ascension for our lives as believers today? There are many, I'm only gonna mention a few. Because Jesus has ascended, he now sits at the Father's right hand. So he can now intercede for us to the Father. We have an advocate in heaven, as Don was saying earlier, because Christ, our advocate, has ascended. If Christ hadn't ascended, he wouldn't be at the Father's right hand, interceding for us. Christ's resurrection and ascension enables us to have communion with our Heavenly Father, freely receiving his mercy and grace. So as we stumble and fall in sin in our walk with the Lord, we can keep running back into the arms of our Abba Father, into his open arms to receive his grace because our ascended Savior is sat at his right hand and is interceding and advocating for us. Another ramification of the ascension, because Jesus has ascended, we can now have the Holy Spirit living in us, which is counterintuitive as it is, is better than having Jesus beside us. The incarnate Jesus, he was limited by space and time. He couldn't be with Paul in Rome and John in Patmos simultaneously. But through his spirit, he can be with us all at once, with believers all over the globe. All of us have God's presence with us all of the time because Christ has ascended and the spirit has descended. And a final implication to mention of the ascension is that because Christ ascended, 
he now reigns from heaven. John Calvin says this, as his body was raised to heaven, so his power and reign have spread to the uttermost parts. Christ reigns. The world may be broken, scary, chaotic, but we can take comfort because Jesus reigns. He is in control. So if this week you have an absolute nightmare of a week, if everything just feels overwhelming, if your world feels like it's falling apart, take heart. Jesus is reigning. He is still holding the world and you in his hands. Jesus is reigning. Christ's ascension may be an overlooked doctrine by me and by many of us, but it has a profound impact on our lives. How wonderful is it that Jesus ascended and that he now reigns in heaven? So, what was the disciples' reaction to the ascension? Have a look at verse 10. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? You can sympathize with the disciples here, can't you? They spent every day of the last three years with Jesus. They've had then the trauma of seeing him crucified and then the joy of seeing him rise again from the dead. And now after just 40 days, he's leaving them again to go to heaven. I mean, if I was there, I'd have been stood there staring at the heavens just desperately, desperately wishing for Jesus to reappear from behind the clouds. It's hard for the disciples to get their heads around the fact that it was actually better for them that Jesus wasn't with them anymore, as counterintuitive as that may seem. But they need to remember that Jesus had promised them that they would receive the Holy Spirit. That's why the angels in verse 10 asked the disciples, why are they gazing into heaven? Their question is an implicit reproach of them for kind of dawdling there and longing for Jesus to remain with them. They've been promised Jesus' presence with them by his Spirit. The disciples didn't have to look to the heavens hoping that he would return. They will have God with them even though they won't physically be able to see Jesus anymore with their own eyes. And again, I think there's an application for us here. A lot of the Christian walk is focusing on the unseen, not the seen. That's what the disciples have been asked to do here. You can no longer see Jesus, but you will have the Holy Spirit who you cannot see. The thing is, we're such visual beings. We're drawn in by things that we can see, touch, taste, smell, feel. It's hard for us to focus on the unseen because we literally can't see it. No wonder Paul says to the church in Colossae in Colossians chapter 3, verse 2, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. He's saying, set your minds not on what you can see, but on what you cannot see. Set your minds on things of ultimate and eternal value. John Calvin says this, we must learn to live for the invisible world, not the visible. For the visible world is passing away, but the invisible world is eternal. As hard as it is, we must set our minds on the things above. We must meditate on who Christ is, on what he's done. We must seek his will, not ours. We must live for God's glory, not our own. We must be captivated by Christ, not by the allures of this world. And we must avoid worshipping any created thing. As easy as that can be, because we can see it, we can feel it, we can touch it. We must avoid worshipping any created thing and instead worship our creator. It is hard, but by the power of the Spirit, we must and can set our minds 
on the things above. We must live for the unseen. We must walk by faith and not by sight. That's how we have joy. That's how we give God glory. And so through us, as we do that, by the power of the Spirit, the ascended Christ builds his kingdom. At the end of our passage, we see the angels leave the disciples with a comfort. They say this in verse 11. This Jesus, who is taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. They're encouraging the disciples that Jesus will come again. That as they go out and be witnesses to all the world, they can look forward to Christ's second coming. That one day he will return to earth and he will restore it to a new earth, a new creation. And that day the kingdom won't just be inaugurated, it will be in its fullness. Christ has ascended and that's wonderful, but he will certainly come back. How beautiful is it, that thought that one day we will see Jesus face to face. And we'll see him face to face in a place where there is no injustice, no pain, no suffering. In this world now, it's better for us to have the Spirit in us and Christ at the Father's right hand. That is the best thing we could possibly have right now. But one day, we'll be with Jesus in the new creation and we will see him face to face. We'll be able to fall at his feet and worship him. May that fact that Jesus will return again be a source of comfort in your own life. I'm convicted that it's not at all enough of a source of comfort in my own. And again, it's partly because it's hard to imagine. It's hard to imagine the new creation as well. I've never seen the new creation. I almost wish that God would give me a VR headset so I could look at it. But he's not. And he knows that we can look forward to that. Look forward to the fact Jesus will come again. Meditate on that. Pray for it. Look forward to it. Be excited for it. Jesus ascended, but he will return. And we can join with the early church as we say today, come Lord Jesus. As we draw to a close, we've seen in this passage that Christ goes up, the Spirit is promised to come down, and that the disciples are instructed to go out. We thought earlier about how leaders comfort their followers as they leave. So how did Christ comfort his disciples as he ascended? He didn't promise an amazing successor. He didn't give them an empty motivational speech full of platitudes. He promised them that he will continue his ministry through them by the power of the Spirit. We are reassured, Theophilus was reassured as we read this passage, that Jesus will continue to do what he began to do. Let's rejoice that Christ rose from the dead and that he has ascended to be with his Father. That right now, right this second, he is interceding for us. That right now he is with us through his Spirit. And because the Holy Spirit is living in us, then we can continue the ministry of Christ. He will build his kingdom here through us. Jesus will accomplish his plans. Nothing can stop him. He is unstoppable. Nothing can stop God from using his spirit-empowered people, as weak and feeble as we may seem, as we may look, nothing can stop God from using his spirit-empowered people to glorify his name. Let's take comfort because we know that our resurrected and ascended Savior will continue to build his church today.